0: Award-winning father son Dudo Edgar Schein and Peter Schein are renowned in the organizational healthcare development space. The pair co-founded the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute and have collaborated on several books, including two in the Humble Leadership Series. The first edition of Humble Inquiry has sold more than 200,000 copies worldwide and has been translated into 17 languages. Asking questions and actively listening to the answers is a foundational skill for everyone in the healthcare space. Unfortunately, in a world of accelerating change, we often find ourselves doing and telling rather than asking and listening. The Shines believe our failure to ask humbly and with the right attitude has created healthcare spaces in which people do not feel psychologically safe to communicate freely, a trend that can be especially detrimental to both patients and healthcare professionals. This episode will help us not only communicate better with our patients, but with our entire healthcare team. Also, I'm now part of a network the Dr. Podcast Network, where all the podcasts cater to a physician audience. For instance, Dr. Jeremy Tofel hosts the Imperfect Dad MD podcast, so be sure to check it
1: out. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block.
0: Panacea Financial provides banking for doctors because it was founded by doctors. They have nationwide loan, checking, and savings options designed specifically for doctors and doctors in training. Their specialized suite of financial products gives medical students, residents, and practicing physicians greater freedom to forge their futures and at affordable rates. By reducing financial barriers and burdens, Panacea Financial ensures that all doctors have increased capacity to serve their patients and the population at large. Do you need a good home for your banking needs? Go to panaceafinancial.com, that's P-A-N-A-C-E-A, financial.com, to get started. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. Ed and Peter Schein, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Our pleasure. Thanks a lot, Brad. Good to be here. So I love the book, but a lot of it, or most of it, was about interactions in business, humble inquiry in order to to help your business to thrive. So I thought it interesting that that we could apply this in healthcare as well, right, to the doctor-patient relationship. So tell us how we can start applying this in addition to managing our staff, right, how we can apply this in our, with our patients?
2: Well, I, I'll take a first crack at that historically, because it seems to me we've always been involved to some degree with medicine and healthcare. but somehow the examples in the book don't convey that. But the basic point is that we have, in the last 50 years, Undergone a big transition, both in business and in medicine, from very transactional, linear, machine like models of how organizations work. And in both domains, more in medicine than even in business, we have discovered that the actual work of doctors, nurses, techs, as well as young businesses is now open, complex systems work, which no longer fits the machine analogy at all. And so the the glib statement, it's more about relationships, which is slowly beginning to seep into businessmen's thinking is already much farther accepted in, in medicine and healthcare, because I think people realize there's a huge interdependency uh, that wasn't there in the machine age. Doctors and nurses could sort of operate independently. That's less and less true as diseases and healthcare itself become complex, simultaneously interdependent activities. So we find ourselves now more working with healthcare than with businesses healthcare is ahead of ahead of this field well i guess we've known for a while in healthcare that the
0: relationship is key right like your your patients are going to refer their friends and colleagues if you have a good relationship with them they're going to come back to you if you have a good relationship they're going to actually pursue more care with you right if you're let's say you're a surgeon you recommend surgery if you don't have a good rapport a good relationship they're in most situations, if they can, they're going to go elsewhere. So the the, the relationship is key.
2: Um, so what what I would like to pick up on is to have Peter talk a little bit about what we mean by a good relationship. We use that term glibly, but society provides us some clues as to how to think about levels of relationship. Right. Yeah.
3: Thanks. And I yeah. I do think that's good sort of foundation for the rest of the conversation in Ed's humble consulting book, which came out, I think in 2013, he described a uh, sort of, it's a sociological model of relationships, but it's really a very, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not culturally strange or, or new or different. It's something that we all sort of implicitly understand, but To really think quite intentionally and consciously about what kind of relationships we have at work and we want to cultivate at work is framed by this model. So I'll talk through it really quickly. The bottom level of relationship that we define, we call a level minus one relationship because it is a relationship defined by people knowing what to expect of each other. But in this case, it's a negative relationship. It's dominance or exploitation. So somebody has absolute control of another person. They're able to exploit them. They're able to dominate them. That is a relationship. We consider that a level minus one relationship. What would be an example of that? Well, the the classic example might be the sweatshop or the, the guard and the prisoner or the basic training, the drill sergeant and the enlist. But what's interesting (laughs) about that example is that we know that in the military case, those relationships that are defined in that sort of level minus one are also quite intentionally going to evolve. In fact, we might argue that some of the highest performing teams that we see examples of anywhere in large complex organizations. Some of the best examples are in the military. In fact, I had a um, general, an army general comment to me, I was presenting some of this to a a group at the Air Force Academy. And um, he said, yeah, we, we go from level minus one, which I had described, to level four. Well, as you'll see, as I describe the other the other relationships, we don't even have a level four in our model. <laughs> so he was describing a level of closeness and intimacy that we don't even explicitly conceive of with our model. But at any, at any rate, it um, it captured that idea that it's quite natural to think about relationships evolving, but we start with that level minus one, and then the next level is a level one transactional relationship. And the thing that's important about this is that when Ed was describing the machine model, really this is defined by interactions between roles, right? So we have defined specific roles. We've got very intricate job descriptions. We know what to expect of each other because the roles are well-defined and therefore the handoffs or the apis between roles are well defined sorry we know, api right oh that's sorry that's that's a silicon valley term the uh, you know application programming interface but basically that means two separate things that know exactly how to interact with each other but they they don't necessarily know how to act interact with each other flexibly they have one way of interacting with each other. And in some respects, that's what level one means, that it's this, it's this transactional relationship. You stay in your lane, you keep your role, and you manage handoffs back and forth, and that's how the efficiency of the system is built.
2: Peter, um, let, our- me, let me interrupt you with two quick examples. Medical school was a level minus one for many years. It is now changing. But the way in which people learned to be doctors, as I understood it, was very much a level minus one relationship with the senior teachers who humiliated students who really were totally dominant over them. And the traditional doctor-patient good bedside manner was very much a level one transactional. The doctor stays in his professional lane and the patient is a good patient, answering questions. So in terms of medical examples, it's very clear to me how level minus one still exists, maybe in the hierarchy.
3: It definitely does. very
2: senior people and junior people, and level one is sort of the traditional means, and what Peter will describe next is level two, is where we're headed, right? And there's a very important idea in that. So level two, we
3: define as really it's a whole person to whole person personal relationship. But what we what we did in the in in the humble leadership book is we use this term personize to distinguish it from personalized, because personalized tends to mean you know personalized shopping or customness or bespoke that. What we're talking about, personized relationships, is that you have a level of openness and trust with that other person that is truly a whole person relationship. It's not just a role-based or professionally distant relationship. Level two means you are shrinking the professional distance to the point that you will offer information to each other that is pertinent and may not have been asked. So think back to that doctor-patient example. If something's going on and the patient doesn't really know how to articulate it, but there is something going on, if the doctor is only able to sort of ask the questions based on the presenting symptoms, and there isn't this sort of a deeper connection, then information gets lost or information for the doctor doesn't get captured. So the idea is in complex work relationships or in nuanced doctor-patient relationships, can you get that level of connection between the two humans to the point where not only will the doctor be able to ask the patient and get answers, but the patient will offer answers the questions that the doctor hasn't even asked. That's what the difference with between level one and level two is in our mind.
2: Let me give the example here that to me is the most striking one is not doctor patient, but doctor and the rest of the team. Because where we see the most important breakdowns in medicine is at the transactional level, handoffs, interactions, mistakes don't get picked up quickly. And the, the positive example is my son-in-law, who is a spine surgeon, a children's spine surgeon, who used to have a dedicated team that he would get to know, he would take them out to lunch and so on, But the economics of the situation produce a situation where he will arrive in the OR and find that that the nurses and the techs and the anesthetists are all strangers. Now what? So he has discovered, I think this is credit to him, that he can use the checklist to build relationships. So he talks to the, the chief nurse in the, right in the OR at the beginning and says, let's go through the checklist very slowly, looking at each of the other team members, eyeball to eyeball, in an inquiring way, hoping that if they have a suggestion or a question, that they'll speak up, so that by the time they've spent five, 10 minutes, slowly going through the checklist, they have kind of become the beginning of a level two team because he has conveyed his own interest in each of them as an individual. To me, that's a very important medical example. It's not just between doctor patient. It's even more between doctor and the rest of the team in the whole OR and hospital setting. So with that, a couple points about level three. Right. So level
3: three is what we really tend to typically think of as intimacy. And usually we don't think this is something that really belongs in the workplace or in a hospital uh, or in a healthcare system. But um, we 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 quickly sort of redefine intimacy this in this way around something, you know, more like professional intimacy. And here, so in other words, we don't want to confuse the idea of sort of romantic intimacy with professional intimacy, because we think that professional intimacy is absolutely appropriate in, in many workplaces. And in fact, a lot of it may have to do with the intensity of the work and the complexity of the work. So there's, we, we're we quite sure that in a SEAL team, there's a high level of professional intimacy between those members of the SEAL team, they need to know each other really well so that they can anticipate each other's moves so that they can, you know, finish each other's sentences so that they can perform at such a high level in such intense conditions. Well, that may be very true of a lot of situations in a hospital where you do need that a level of professional intimacy uh, above and beyond just the sort of quickly established openness and trust like ed was describing in the surgical checklist example so when that general referred to level four i'm not sure what he meant but he clearly was espousing the idea of professional intimacy as being something very important in uh high complexity and and um uh you know life and death situations as a occurs on the battlefield or you know in the hospital on 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 you know on any given day or any well, given hour.
2: I want to throw in a medical example there. In this research that was done with, with a new cardiac open heart procedure that a colleague of ours, Amy Edmondson at Harvard studied, where two sets of hospitals were studied some of which adopted the procedure and some of which rejected the procedure. And she was trying to figure out why there would be the difference. Couldn't find anything in the ecology or the hospitals or the size or anything, but discovered that in those groups that rejected the procedure, the senior cardiac surgeon had said, this is a professional job, I want the best people, and he assigned uh, people to to each of the roles, anesthesia, et cetera, et cetera. They then tried the procedure, doing it by the book, discovered that they really couldn't do it, too many surprises, and concluded this is too complicated, we're not ready. Okay, fair enough, so what's going on in these other groups? So what Amy found in interviewing, the, again, the senior cardiac surgeons is that the, they said, Let, I want some volunteers, this, is, this might be complicated. Who wants to work with me? So right off the bat, you've got a very different relationship starting instead of the senior surgeon assigning people, asking for volunteers. Then he took them out to lunch to get to know them. Then they collectively decided, this is gonna be complicated, so let's find ourselves a simulator and see how much of this we can simulate. They then discovered all the things that could go wrong in this new procedure and began to get close to this level three, you know, getting to know each other So, that when they finally hit the real patients, they were ready, they knew what each other was going to do, they understood the process, and they found it possible to use this new procedure. To me, that's a very important study to show how the doctor's attitude toward the rest of the team can, can build these relationships to a very high level if the task is very complex?
3: Brad, we like to to describe, well, most organizations, but certainly, you know, medical systems as socio-technical systems, where it's it's an intrinsically combined, highly technical, but also highly human. And I think Ed's example is one where the technical problem could have been solved, but what made it effective was that the the socio side of it was resolved early or was optimized early so that the technical throughput wasn't going to be as challenging because these very adaptive human beings, as we all are, were able to kind of figure out how to make the technical system really work.
0: Well, it seems to me that the the difference there is that the team got to know each other so well that there was a free flow of communication, and so that way, at any point, any person in the team felt free to communicate with any other member of the team. Whereas, if it's the first time doing this procedure, you know everyone's looking to the physician to make all the decisions, which ultimately we bear all. You know, there are two physicians: the anesthesiologist and the surgeon, but bear the all of the responsibility for what happens. And so then they defer all the decisions, even though they might see or notice something. So uh, I think to your point, and uh, Ed, with your son-in-law and and the checklist, you know, developing that relationship such that there's a free flow of communication. And we've seen that, right, with pilots, right? If uh, it's in a place where there's a co-pilot who's subordinate to the pilot, they're reluctant to uh, describe if they see a problem, and then this can... Even if they do notice yeah. a legitimate problem, maybe they tell it too late, or they don't say it at all, and and now you've run into trouble. So right. it seems to me just a, a mechanism for allowing free flow of information and communication.
3: Right, and the, and the those cockpit examples are really painful because they 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 usually involve life and death. Um, we had one here uh, in two thousand thirteen at um, at SFO. And there's the, the famous one um uh with the I think it was a Colombian airline. It was a translation problem, but but it also truly was sort of a hierarchy problem. And that's a lot of what we're really trying to get at. The, and that's the term that's being used now, and it's it's been around for a while, but it's something that really has to be imprinted in people's minds is how of creating psychological safety so that that particularly in situations where it's life and death if you see something you say something if you hear something if you feel something you have to be able to speak up you have to have that psychological safety to to um to say what's going on it's you know a lot of what we say in the in the preface to the humble inquiry book is that a lot of what we're trying to get at is that is to try to kind of pry open intent and consciousness so that people will really be able to get at what's going on. So much of our work and our conversation is kind of bounded by these roles that we're playing. We're trying to say with humble inquiry and establishing open and trusting relationships, you get to the point where you have a broader contextual sense of what's really going on. Because again, if it's life and death, you're gonna wanna know what's really going on. You're not wanna be wanting to stay in these bounded, structured sort of information exchanges. You need to have information sharing.
0: Medicine is extraordinarily hierarchical, right? And, And one example is the fact that I'm the attending, I'm doctor. You call me Dr. Block. Everyone calls me Dr. Block. Everyone else is called by their first name. So this establishes this hierarchy. Would you recommend that then physicians go by their first names? Right. Would this start to break down barriers like that? Because now it's done because in the patient, right, doctor-patient relationship, we're trying to also establish that dynamic, right? I'm not Mr. Block, I'm not Brad, I'm Dr. Block. Right. And then that permeates the rest of the, the rest of the medical establishment. There's the doctors, and then there's everyone else who goes by their first name. So would you recommend that we all go by our first names?
2: I think that's oversimplifying the, the the reality that the hierarchy is still there. People do know, in particularly in medicine, but also in any organization, that even when relations get very informal between the boss and the subordinate, that the boss still has accountability and still has the power to make or break the people below her. So I think the trick of developing these level two relationships and beyond is to be relevantly informal, not necessarily in some kind of arbitrary mechanical way. Because the reality that the the patient may still prefer to be able to say Dr. So-and-so and, and be able to, to trust that person in a different way than everyone else or the interns or the others who are standing around. That doesn't mean that the minute they're outside the door that they don't then address each other informally. But I think one of the problems in working with these hierarchies is that the temptation is to ignore the socio tech side and just work the technical side. So there are all these improvement programs which talk about the hierarchy and the processes and how to how to have huddles and how to be more informal, but they are all derivative from an engineering technical kind of culture and don't sufficiently say, well, once we're in the huddle or when the doctor is handing off an important patient to the ICU nurse, at those times, they have to be able to be level two at least. So it's partly the not to to have blanket rules for all doctors and all nurses, but to have a sensitivity to what's going on here. And if I'm handing off this complicated surgical patient to the ICU, to be able to say to the nurse, now here are some special conditions that you gotta be aware of, that we became aware of during the surgery. And at that moment, that nurse has to feel psychologically safe to say, Doc, I don't understand. Or, you know, that what you wrote out in the, in, the, uh, in the written stuff didn't communicate. At those points, I think it becomes critical. And humble inquiry then becomes the vehicle to say, you know, I don't understand. Uh, can you tell me more? Or the doctor actually saying to the tech or the nurse, do you understand? Have I been clear? Uh, it's got to be situational, not some general rule. But, but to your point, Brad, I, there's
3: another principle that, that I think comes into that idea that to say, don't refer to me as Dr. Block, refer to me as Brad is you you may then be signaling what what we believe is really important and that is embracing the idea of here and now humility that when we say humble when we say humble inquiry humble leadership humble consulting all of these books what we define humble as is not some character character trait right if you're a world renowned um You know, thoracic surgeon. You're probably not. (laughs) I mean, it's not fair for me to say, but it's not. It's that's a really hard position to get to, and you may have been very driven and and personally motivated, selfishly driven, and you may not come across as the most humble person, right? You may be quite arrogant. That's okay. You're a world-class thoracic surgeon. You're. It's. It's that may conform to people's expectations very well. However, in any given situation, embracing the idea of here and now humility, anybody's capable of doing that. It just means sort of, you know, stepping outside yourself for a second and saying, this is a new situation. There's a bunch of complicated factors. There's a bunch of other people here who know what's going on. And I need to impress to them that I want them to tell me what's going on. I don't want to be the all-knowing omniscient omnipotent you know thoracic surgeon. I want to be the, the, um, the doctor who brings this group together because it's a really complicated case and I need to know what they know. not I don't need to show what I know. I need them to to tell me what they know. And that's what humble inquiry, the spirit of humble inquiry is all
2: about.
0: So what are some examples of of what we can do? Because, you know, some of these are are long-term relationships, but some of these aren't, right? Like sometimes you're on the same shift as someone. They're only going to be there for a couple of weeks or even for a couple of days, right? Like how do we send these signals that we're approachable, that we want, their input that we want to know their opinion that we want to them to signal to them that we will
2: n- non-judgmentally you know receive their information well the the simplest thing is to use the skills we use outside of work when we want to be informal with friends or relatives we put on a different face, we ask questions, we say, how's it going today? We make a personal remark about, uh, it's been a hard day, hasn't it? There are a zillion ways we know how to be informal, but there's somehow the norm has grown up that at work, we have to put on our formal transactional self and not to use these very simple devices uh, where I can imagine you as a doctor meeting a, a new charge nurse might actually make a comment about her or ask her, where are you from? Uh, with that tone, uh, I, I don't think it's mysterious. I think it's more that we, we want, we're scared to actually be a little bit here and now humble. Uh, We don't want to give up that authority uh, position, and yet if we're really, I think the key is to recognize you are dependent on those people, so it's in your interest to be a little bit more open and informal with them, not to be nice, (laughs) but to get them to tell you what you need to know. And maybe that dependence is sometimes invisible, and yet it's terribly important that you recognize as the doctor how much you depend on them not only to do the right thing but to tell you when you are not doing the right thing or when they don't understand or whatever. I don't think it's so mysterious, so it's like when i was it's like when
0: I was single, and I used to uh you know. Try to approach someone in the bar. So, where are you from? Or I like your earrings, exactly. or something like that. Exactly. Well, but
3: but you know that brings up a really important point, though, is that human beings are have pretty good bullshit radars. Yeah. And so if you're if you're trying to do this with you know um, a, a a tech or a, a nurse who you don't have any relationship with, and it comes across as as insincere. It may even be worse than not trying at all. And so we're we've always we we've kind of developed these some sort of key ideas that you really have to buy into or it comes across as bullshit. So you really do have to 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 gut check, do I care? If I'm gonna ask, if I believe that I need to develop a closer relationship, I have to, I have to care where the person's from. I actually have to be genuinely curious. I cannot just go through these questions, because it, it it's transparent. People know that if you're just going through these questions, you know again the sort of these are not pickup lines at a bar. These are these this, there has to, you have to to communicate some sincerity when you when you when you go through this. But then I think the other thing, the reason that that's that's maybe the humility part. You have to be be willing to ask questions you don't know the answer to, (laughs) right? And then, um, but you also have to really train yourself to deeply listen, maybe even get to an awkward silence because you ask somebody an open-ended question and you let them go until you arrived at that moment of awkward silence. Um, if you do that then maybe you you realize you really are both opening up to establishing a relationship it's very easy to kind of bounce back to the next sort of diagnostic question um but w- what we're suggesting is that the getting to that sort of that that moment of awkwardness where you really are opening up your 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 inquiring to the point of awkwardness but then you one way you get through that is you reveal something about yourself and that that starts to build that sort of circular empathy um and if you can get to that within 5 minutes and we know it's possible you know the whole speed dating idea wouldn't have ever existed if we didn't think we could get to that <laughs> you know and that's that's not even 5 minutes right so um anyway that's that's sort of the the general idea even in the shortest interactions um, it's it's possible to do this but you you have to really train yourself to care you know to step outside of yourself a little bit to care enough because that caring comes through loud and clear so we've talked a lot so far about the
0: professional relationships the with the other professionals in the healthcare setting but Can we talk a little about the doctor-patient relationship? Because humble inquiry, you know, similar to what you you just said, right? Like we have to genuinely care. You have to ask an open-ended question. You have to let them actually complete the thought. But tick tick tick, right? We're on a schedule. We're not lawyers. We we don't bill by the hour as much as I'd like to, and then you know let people talk for as long as they uh, and they would appreciate it too. But that's just not how the system is designed. Right. So how do we apply humble inquiry during the visits efficiently?
2: Well, the example I use that may be completely unrealistic, but nevertheless, I think it's an important example is, you, you know, you only have 10 minutes or 20 minutes for the visit. It's highly structured. You don't want to uh, be late and so on. I don't see any reason why the doctor can't come charging in. The patient's been sitting there waiting, is irritated at, at having to put that stupid Johnny on. Why the doctor can't come in with a smile on his face is and say, well, I'm only a little bit late. And you know, we're both bound by this new system of I only got 20 minutes, but let's see if we can make the best use of it big smile on his face. Let's start with what's worrying you most. I don't see any reason why a doctor can't start the relationship that way. But instead of coming in formally, holding the chart, picking up the chart, reading the chart, maintaining distance, all of that is unnecessary. He, can, he or she can come in and say, let's get started. You know, we've only got 20 minutes, and ask an open question like, what's worrying you, Ed? I, I think
3: part of what we always want to remind ourselves, and by inference to other people in this, is that it's kind of embracing the shared context. Neither of you can change that that fact that, you know, you're a family practice doctor and you Probably got a thousand patients, I don't know, give or take, and you probably got to see twenty people that day. Embracing that context would probably be really helpful for for the patients. The patients don't need to to somehow believe that they're that that they're the the one of two you know visits the doctor has that day. They know they're not, and and they're so in general. There's this idea of we. We can be so quickly drawn into the content of why we're there and sort of, um, you know, sort of an unwillingness to embrace the context of, of this that situation. That sort of, you know, situational awareness or contextual awareness, I just think is so important and it gets overlooked all so, the time.
0: So I think what I'm hearing is using an icebreaker right like something that's relevant to the situation that you both will find either interesting or funny and you start off the visit with that rather than you know why are you here some other well, more peripheral thing that leads into why are you here
3: that 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 goes straight to the content
2: yeah yeah the the key is to use the word we right from the beginning why are we here? Why are we here? Hopefully and they won't answer with or, something more metaphysical. Or to say not why are we here, but to acknowledge we are both here in a system that gives us too little time. So let's make the most of it. It's, but getting it to we as quickly as possible, I think, is another clue.
3: I also think there's this idea of um, what's efficient and what's effective. We get so caught up in the efficiency of all of these things that we're trying to do. It's analogous to the, you know, being seduced by the content of what we're trying to do. And recognize that sometimes the most effective interventions parked all of the all of the noise and really got quickly to the signal of what's going on. Um, and in your profession, there's a lot of noise that you have to you have to kind of try to cut through to get to what's really going on. Um, well maybe maybe that truly sort of humble inquiry question of you know what's worrying you? What's you know why are we here today? Well you know, so it's what's worrying open-ended. You?
0: What's yeah. worrying you? That's a great lead into my to what's going to be my last question, which is often Patients have what I call the question behind the question, which is the thing that they're not asking. So for me, an example is, I see this all the time. Patients come in with a a symptom called globus. It's a lump. You feel like there's a lump in your throat. And so most of them think, I have throat cancer. And so the question is, I've got this lump in my throat, You know, and they tell the story. That's why they're here. They're here describing their symptom. The question behind the question is, doc, do I have cancer? Do I have throat cancer? And so I find it critically important to name that, right? And if they've left without use verbally making it very clear, you do not have throat cancer. What I just did during this evaluation was a thorough evaluation that includes looking for this specific diagnosis. You don't have it. So how can we utilize humble inquiry to make sure that we are getting what they're worried about, right? You said, what are you worried about? How do we make sure that we're not only addressing the symptom that they're describing, but their underlying concerns?
2: Well, I think this idea of what is worrying you is not a casual thought. I think over the years, we both learned that in conversations, the technical gets all the attention. You know, what are your symptoms? What's hurting? Where and so on because the patient is also trained that that's what the doctor wants to hear about. So I think even a question of, uh, so the patient starts with, I've got this lump. Even the question right then and there, is that really a concern? Would open the door right away. Not just to say, well, tell me more about the lump. (laughs) You say, why are you concerned about it? Lumps of occur in throats. To shift to the social part of the sociotech, to the emotional part. And I don't think doctors are maybe trained enough to ask about so you've got this throat lump, how does that make you feel? Or why does that worry you? Uh, is a whole category of questions that are personalized and emotionally charged and social that gets you past the technical stuff. And I think that's possible to do that. And good doctors do that all the time. When a pediatrician who who was a pediatrician to Peter was once asked to come to our house because Peter had a high fever, I don't know, he was four or five, and the first thing this pediatrician did was to look, take a look at Peter who was lying there scared to death, and the pediatrician said, Peter, you're not going to die. <laughs> that was a classic example of empathy on the part of the pediatrician before any questions, just like your example of saying to the patient, you know, you don't have cancer.
0: Oh, I think I think that's great. And you know, with pediatricians, there are two patients in the room, right? There's the patient and then there's a parent. So addressing both of them and saying, is this concerning to you? Why is this concerning to you? I think you know, we'd probably get some entertaining answers out of the kids too, right? Like, and then there's going to be great context. Why is this worrying you? I'm worried I'm going to miss yeah. my baseball game. I'm worried I'm going to miss a birthday party. I'm worried to, exactly. and then, you know, that opens up such a great. Opportunity for that relationship building with that kid. Exactly, because they might not say, "I'm worried I'm going to die." (laughs) They're worried about (laughs) video games or whatever that you know.
3: So the uh, punchline on that story, by the way, Brad, is that was T. Berry Brazelton, the the famous pediatrician who really I think became very well known for his ability to build relationships with his patients, not just the parents, but with the kids. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that, I mean, to me, I see a lot of kids. That's what—that's where the joy really comes from. It's from the, those those relationships with the kids, and then those kids go on to be, you know, go on to be adults. All right. So, well, this has really been, I, I would say, transformative in the way that it'll help us interact with our our partners, our staff, the hospital staff, our patients. So, where can people find more about? Uh, You both, Ed and Peter, and and the books, and the company at OCLI.
3: Yeah. So the, the book that we've mostly been talking about is Humble Inquiry, the second edition. And so that's available everywhere, but, you know, Amazon's probably the easiest. Okay. And our organization is the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute, which is really just a partnership between Ed and I. We gave it a fancy name, but uh, it does have a website, O-C-L-I dot org, and um, that has more information about us. It, it has uh, information about some of our other work we do do a lot of work in organizational culture these things are very closely related but it's sort of a separate thread so if people are interested in that we love talking about that as well
2: great well and i would just add that we have one relationship with with a large hospital system where under the umbrella of improvement they have decided that just giving the book to a lot of people and then building group discussions around the book is a very effective intervention. So the book itself, even though it's got this business bias, cuts through pretty quickly to the, the human side. And you might just experiment with handing the book out to a couple of colleagues and see how they react to it. We, we also, in the at the end of
3: the second edition, we put in some um, sort of mini, we call them mini case studies, but they're basically little exercises that you can go through and just sort of test for yourself. It's, there's no right answers on generally on this, but we've, we provide, you know, some examples of how you might respond in these situations. To, in order to sort of tease out what would him, humble inquiry be here versus diagnostic in for inquiry or confrontational inquiry. Um, and so it, it, it does sort of bring some of the book to life a little bit more, and it might give you, um, you know, sort of a fun way to, to tease this out a little bit. We hate to say you must read the whole book, but, these exercises are actually pretty, pretty worthwhile and pretty useful, and in just sort of getting into the mindset.
0: Yeah, how would I apply it versus how I should be applying it, and help me change my thinking with some real examples? Right. Yeah. Wonderful.
2: Wonderful. Well, it's been a pleasure to. I I have to take off, so I'm going to say thank you for giving us a chance because. We do think it's very important in the healthcare area to get this across. Well, thank you very much both for your
0: time. And again, OCLI.org. Yep. OCLI.net will take you to ophthalmologic consultants of Long Island that are the yes. eye doctors <laughs> near me. So OCLI.org and uh, an Humble Inquiry. Thank you so much, uh, Peter and Ed
3: Shine, for your time. Thank you so much, Enjoy Brad. It was a really much. good thank discussion. You. Oh, and by the
0: way, don't forget to reach out to Panacea Financial for your banking needs as a physician, because they are built by physicians. Panacea's PRN personal loan was designed specifically for physicians and physicians in training. Go to panaceafinancial.com, that's P-A-N-A-C-E-A, financial.com, and open your new account today. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC.
1: That was Dr. Bradley Block at The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.